table is set for another Literary Roundtable, where we serve you the perfect pairing of author and expert. No book or subject is off limits at the only place on the net where you can join in the discussion and ask our guests any questions you like. So pull up a chair and join the discussion. Welcome to the Literary Roundtable. I'd like to welcome everyone to part two of our five-part series on the Literary Roundtable we're calling A House United, Understanding America and Each Other. The purpose of this series is to discuss the many reasons why our country has become so divisive and how we might begin the process of healing and bringing our country back together again. Today, our guests include author Antonio Elmali. He is the author of the Civil War and Reconstruction novel, The Ones They Left Behind, which is a powerful story about the journey one Civil War veteran takes to heal a divided nation. It is set in post-Civil War America and contains many parallels between America during Reconstruction and America today. We talked about many of those parallels in part one of our series, and we may very well discuss more of those parallels in the coming hour. You can find out more about Antonio and his books at antonioamali.com. Also joining the roundtable today is Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and his focus there is classics and military history. He's also an award-winning and prolific author and editor of numerous books and articles, which you can find more information about on his website, victorhanson.com. Welcome to both of you today. Thank you for having me. Me too. A pleasure to have both of you here today. In our last podcast, we discussed many of the parallels between Civil War America and today. Uh, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on a variety of subjects, and I think I'm going to start with this today. What do you think are the major issues in America that are driving a wedge between us? Is there one particular major issue that stands out, or do you think there's a combination of those? Uh, Dr. Hampton, uh, let's start with you. Well, I think it's the idea of federalism or national unity. I think there's a, there's a growing divide that as demography changes, that the old-time confidence in the melting pot assimilation, integration, intermarriage is weakening, and people are starting to see themselves uh, as individuals, and uh, by their appearance rather than the content of their character, they identify themselves. So I think that's a real challenge because we saw it in the last, uh, this hyphenated Americanism. It also involves individual states that are seeing themselves red, blue, we have 85% of the country live on the two coasts, and yet those cultures are much different. 85% of the population lives in just 15% of the geography. This entire Red Sea in the middle is at odds with the Blue Sea on the two coasts. So we're starting to fragment along ethnic, religious, racial, demographic, and ge geographical lines, and there's not any real force that says, we're Americans first, or our superficial appearances are only incidental, not essential to our character. And there's not a good history. There's not a good record in history whether we look at more recently the Balkans or Rwanda, or the Austria-Hungary Empire. There's just not a good record there that identity politics and tribalism um, are ties that are conducive to a state. And uh, that when they start to trans transcend national unity, and we're even seeing it in things that are almost neo-Confederate ideas like sanctuary cities or that individual jurisdictions can override federal law. So I think it's something that's quite dangerous. I, I, I would agree with uh, a lot of what you said. I think that the fractionalizing of the audiences, these echo chambers that people feel they need to uh, sequester themselves into for security to know that their ideas are, are being supported, is getting smaller and smaller, and I think that's a function of social media and the internet. And it has the, it has the unfortunate and ironic effect of instead of knitting people together, it has the effect of actually getting them more into these very specific little pockets in which the echo chamber is louder because there's probably fewer fewer people, you know, trying to get into the into the dialogue. But the room is also smaller, so it's a it's an unfortunate development of of technology and also social uh, social pressure i'm not sure what the what the uh, the answer is i think probably it starts with much more individual contact between people of 
of different opinion and uh, beginning the, the process of learning how to listen to folks you don't agree with. That could be a good start. Do you think this is something new, or do you think it's it's been there, whether it's below the surface or above the surface, and with this last election cycle, with Trump being a lightning rod, it's exposed this, or is this something that's relatively new? Well, there had been fault lines before, but... Uh, social media, of course, and technology are force multipliers, but they're not, I don't think they're quite the catalyst for it. I think there's been, uh, globalization and urbanization and the culture. So we have now the, the fuel that drives American culture are located in particular areas and they're Malibu, Hollywood, uh, the big banks, all the major universities, Stanford, Berkeley, UCLA, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, Wall Street, government in Washington. They're all conducive to unique, highly sophisticated, highly educated cultures in which people come out of prestigious universities and they become a ruling elite, which is fine. But in between, these are sort of the old muscular arts of mining, farming, uh, logging, manufacturing, construction. And somehow this country got a narrative in the last 30 years that Apple or Google or Washington or Hollywood or Stanford or whatever it was was the wave of the post-industrial future and that the rest were going to have to move or they were going to have to change or they were going to have to modify. And that economic reality that we were told also um, transmogrified into cultural aspects that the people in between, even though the people like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton had run as late as 2008 on uh, opposition to gay marriage, and Bill Clinton had been a fierce critic of illegal immigration. That economic reality of globalization and the idea that the interior was less important or their jobs could be outsourced or whatever the, the narrative was, it had a cultural ramification that people were xenophobic or they were racist or they were nativist or they were parochial. And we sort of divided into, if I could use a caricature, the pajama boy model on the coast and the ice truckers or axemen model in the interior. <laughs> and it even got to questions of comportment, diction, appearance. And so Trump, Trump didn't create this. He just took a lever and widened the fissure because he understood that uh, the democratic and liberal movement hadn't seen something. And what they hadn't seen was that why they were saying the demography was irrevocably changed and that states that had been red, like New Mexico or Nevada, to take two examples now because of Hispanic populations were changed uh, to the liberal side for good, Trump said, well, wait a minute, um, Texas is always going to be red and California is always going to be blue, and that demographic change is going to nullified itself in the major areas, but more importantly, the blue wall of Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania is full of people who don't like to be talked down to by what this elite, especially, and then he added sort of a, a second element to it that widened the gap, but was also very effective electorally. And he said, you are subject to the ramifications of ideology by elites, and they're not subject to their own ramifications. So here in California, we have red-blue divide even within the state where people on the coast say, we have to have high-speed rail, but we don't want to build it first on the coast. You try it down in the, in the interior. Or we want water transfers from Hetcheshi for the water supply of San Francisco, but we don't want any more uh, reservoirs or lakes or aqueducts for farming. Or uh, we don't want any walls on the southern border, but Mark Zuckerberg and the titans of the universe in Silicon Valley have walls around all of their numeral, numerous estates. And so that was the thing that really triggered the anger, that, that there were people that were pontificating and whether they knew it or not were condescendingly and talking down to this interior group who were in a different economy, a different culture, a different mindset. And now we've sort of split apart. And you can start to see things that we thought we'd never see here in California. We're talking about neo-Confederate ideas of nullification uh, in a sense of sanctuary cities that are not subject to federal jurisdiction. We're talking about withholding federal revenues. Recent polls said a third of Californians wanted to succeed from the nation. And, I mean, that's, a, that's an ideology or a template or a modality that just won't work because if Salt Lake City says, 
I don't want to have federal gun registration apply within Salt Lake City, or Cody, Wyoming says the EPA's standards on endangered species will not apply and within Cody. You can see where it's going to lead to, and yet I don't, I don't think there's voices that are saying, whatever your politics are, please, California, don't do that. With this last election cycle, the Republicans started out with a field of, it seemed like a cast of thousands. This is not sort of a problem with the Democrats being out of touch. It seems like the sort of the diehard Republicans that have been in power for a while, they were also, Trump also threw a wrench into their. Well, he took four issues that Republicans did not think should be issues, and it shocked the Republican field. One was trade and jobs. Republicans had always bought into free market economics, creative destructions, Hayek, Friedman, and all of a sudden Trump came along and said to people of the Midwest, for in one's case, you lose your jobs to outsourcing or offshoring, but these people who are professors or journalists or people like myself who are columnists, we don't wake up in the morning and find our jobs sent to India. You do. And then he took another issue that was supposedly taboo, and that was illegal immigration. He said, you know, he, he said things, and people forgot that, but he said things. If you file a f false federal affidavit or you get a fake Social Security name or you go to jail, if somebody came in here illegally, they don't. Two or not, it didn't matter. He was addressing an issue that you have to follow the law. You can't pick and choose, whereas the Republican field had said after the 2012 uh, Obama victory, we better get don't touch that issue because the demography is changing. And Trump basically said it may be changing, but it's not changing necessarily in a way that's always going to help the Democrats because Obama's constituencies are not transferable to somebody like Hillary Clinton, a 69-year-old white millionaire. But they are transferable in the sense that they turn off working-class voters. So that was new. And then he took other issues, political correctness. Excuse me for interjecting there on this one, but yeah. Donald Trump is – a billionaire, according to himself. Why would that only apply to Hillary? And why is ah, it that's a very good point? Because populism for him, it, yeah, populism is not just a reality of your context. I mean, George Soros is a billionaire, and yet people like Bernie Sanders feel that he's a fellow populist social warrior because of his mindset. And the same thing was true of Trump. He was a pariah among billionaires. He may not even have been a billionaire. Much of it was self-created. But he had a outer borough accent. He wore garish clothes. He had orange skin, weird comb over. He really enjoyed it. People, You talk to people in New York, they all tell you, and, and I've talked to people who know him, who said that he liked people laying cement, working. He, he had an affinity, and he had an ability to interact with them in a way that he didn't really with bankers. And then it helped him that the entire Republican establishment, the National Review, Weekly Standard, Commentary Magazine, the Wall Street Journal in some part, hated him. And they voiced their hatred, not just in political terms that he was unorthodox, he didn't believe in free trade or NAFTA, but that something about him was crude, crass, uncouth. He was and they used class arguments against him and they failed to realize that not only amplified his appeal to people that he was trying to get to come out to vote, the old Reagan Democrats. And so he was a populist, even though by strict definition he was wealthier and had more exquisite taste than did Hillary. But that's not what was I, I, I can second people. that, by the way, uh, Victor, because, you know, having been in the real estate business in New York, although I've never had any transactions with Trump, I, you know, the, the perception always was that he's a Queens guy desperate to get across the river. Yeah. So there's this, there's this deep kind of social insecurity that's, that's bubbling away, and I'm sure it hasn't left. And I'm sure that a lot of the impulses that he still has are fired by this kind of gnawing sense that he, he was born on the wrong side of the tracks, you know, even it was, even though it was New York City. And, the elite, you know, the New York State, you know, the New York City real estate families, as a as a, as a an example, would ne wouldn't take wouldn't take them seriously. Oh, that's just Donnie, you know. Oh, you're Donnie. absolutely right about that. And that, yeah, and yeah. and so you factor that into the lens that he sees the world through, and inevitably there's going to be 
there's going to be some serious friction. I just wanted to double back to your earlier question, Joe, and your comments, Victor, about is this divisiveness new and the issue of how so many people feel like they've been left behind. You know, is, you know, with globalization, it strikes me that as everybody went roaring into globalization, but there was never any planning for the transitional economy. So the skill sets that were evaporating with, uh, you know, the dye worker or the steel worker or, or whatever jobs that were going to eventually be displaced, there was nothing to replace to take up the slack in the anticipation that technology would wreak such a, you know, a horrible toll of no, you're jobs. Right. And I don't know, I don't know who's, you know, we can point fingers all day long, but that's a, it seems to me as a society and, and as a role of the government, when you see paradigm shifts coming, you know, you better be starting to prepare your people for what that looks like and what the impacts uh-huh. are and have some solutions, not just say, oh, oh well, uh-huh. now you have an iPhone, you must be, uh, you know, you must be capable of uh, adjusting to the new Information economy. Well, I think that's and the other the other point. point I wanted to bring out about our have we always been this divided? I, I mentioned this earlier, and and it, it was one of the images that fired my writing this this novel. Um, I had uh, been um, uh, involved in the ill-fated uh, Bill Bradley campaign in 2000, and after the election, I, I I saw the electoral map, you know how the states went, and it triggered this memory of another of another electoral image. And that was the 1860 election, so that it, when you took away all the states west of the Mississippi in that modern 2000 map, because in 1860 those states didn't exist with the exception of California, it was exactly the same map. I mean, almost exactly the same map. And so the question that just jumped right out at me is what hasn't changed? You know, our political, the reflection of these two images side by side shows virtually the same kind of representation of political beliefs, you know, social organization, whatever you want to call it. So I think the divisiveness or the divide, if you want to call it, has always been there. It's just our history and our study of it, of it I think, is catching up with us. Yeah, that's but that, that's a circular process because had we looked at the map in 1932, to take one example, it would have been much different. And that the enclaves of Republican power were in the north and the South was, without exception, democratic. And, and then civil rights and other things, social conservatism changed it back again. I, I'd like to say one thing, and that is that the problem with the Republicans is that the people who were espousing this Adam Smith orthodoxy or Milton Friedman, they were right in theory, but they either had no idea or they had no sympathy for the ramifications of how it affected people. I can remember farming in 2000 excuse me, 1983, when the price of raisins dropped uh, by 80%. And uh, that was because of the new EU applied subsidies to Greek and Turkish raisins, $400 a ton, and it destroyed the export market for the America. And then the Reagan administration let in, without tariffs, foreign raisins. And we were told by Republicans now that this was good for us because we would learn, in theory it might have been, we would learn how to make a profit not at $1,400 a ton, but at 450 and then we'd become more efficient. The consumer would get cheaper. And that was the attitude that the Republican Party bought into, at least its elites did. And when we were we told them that 5,000 people, and did they did go broke, uh, that was the, the whole entire raisin industry of small farmers were wiped out. They said, well, this is part of creative destruction. And this, you're going to have to either change or get with it. But people at that time, well before Trump, and this was sort of the before Ross Perot said, this creative destruction is not applicable to people who are lobbyists in Washington or who are in other areas of the academic world or in the entertainment world. Why is it always the people that make things? And whether that's a valid argument or not, that's how it was perceived. People thought with Ross Perot's implosion that it had passed, and then here comes Trump, the unlikely populist, and he went right back to that issue, and and he didn't tell people you have to move or you have to go into job retraining. He said, you make the granite in our kitchens, you make the stainless steel on our refrigerators, you make the wood floors, all the people on the coast like that stuff. 
It's not irrelevant. It's still important to their lives. In fact, that's what they spend their, that's what they make their money for. They love to have a Lexus. They love to have a Mercedes. You guys make that. And you don't get credit either psychologically or economically. And I'm going to change that. Boy, it was easy to caricature because it was simplistic and it was populist and maybe even demagogic, but it really resonated with people. And the Republican elite hated Trump as much as the Democratic elite did, and that only fueled his popularity even more. Do you think, Victor, um, I think I'm going to make the assumption that you're, you have your finger uh, on the pulse of the Republican world more than I do, but do you think that this fractionalization that we talked about previously filters down into the, 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 the parties themselves, that they're experiencing to some degree or another, the same kind of breakdown of a consensus voice or issues that can run through all of the disparate issues and unify, you know, the party, so to speak, into uh, getting behind, you know, some uh, uh, proposals or some policies that may actually hold potential for the other side to also agree with. In other words, is yeah, this fractionalization in your mind coming coming more on the parties, and they don't have the they don't have the apparatus, or they don't have the sensitivity, or whatever it is, to adjust to it? So they're both kind of floundering around in this. Yeah, vacuum, I, I, you know, I think they have a rendezvous with, and it's just a question of who's going to be hemorrhaging worse in the next election. In the case of the Democrats, I think any empirical person, an outsider. And I'm still a registered Democrat, but if I were to look at that empirically, I would say the Keith Ellison, uh, Barack Obama identity politics is not necessarily the, the future of that party because it was part of the unique appeal and charisma and uh, background of Barack Obama. But to what Obama did get record uh, turnout among minorities was at a cost of demonizing the clingers or what Hillary called the irredeemables or the deplorables, and that's still 70% of the country. And so they have a problem with that. They're going to go further and further down the race class gender issues, which the elites on the coast favor, and they're basically going to end up as a coastal local party in the sense that they've lost the governorships, the legislatures, the House, the Senate, the presidency, the Supreme Court. And if they double down on failure, they're going to get even more marginalized. In the case of the Republicans, they're bewildered because had they nominated uh, a sober and judicious Scott Walker or Mar Marco Rubio, I think they would have lost. I really do, because I don't think that they would have got these key voters in these key states to rally in the way that Trump did. And so they're angry and they're bewildered that – They've never had a situation like this since Calvin Coolidge, but it, it's due entirely to someone they despise and that they've caricatured and they hate. And they quite they can't quite square the circle of, wow, he gave us Jim Mattis at Secretary of Defense. He gave us Neil Gorsuch as a nominee to the Supreme Court. But then he makes he makes me feel queasy when he tweets these crazy things. They don't like the people that Trump represents. They don't like Trump. They don't like Steve Bannon. They don't like any of these people. In fact, they despise them. And yet they're starting to see that these were the, th these were the very mechanisms that allowed them to return to power in the way that the Bushes or uh, the, the establishment uh, Romney-type people would never have done. Jeb Bush or Mitt Romney would have never got them the power that they have now. And they don't know to what degree they, they're beholden to Trump or they're going to have to compromise on things like free trade or, or what, but they – they despise them. And I know a, a great number of people in the Republican establishment, and when I talk to them, their arguments are as unempirical as the Democrats. They they just gush. They, they, they scream. They yell. They cannot deal with Trump in a logical, empirical fashion. They just can't deal with him. They hate him so much. It's almost inexplicable. It's something about his culture or his voice or his mannerisms or his crudity or what. If you say that he has an animal cunning, and he, and he does, and he's very astute, in some of his tweets, and he's been able to, to do things that they couldn't do, then they get even angrier. And they feel He's also been consistently underestimated his entire career, and he's, make, he's made you know, artful use of other folks' flawed expectations of, of his capacity. You know, they're so yeah, busy making so. fun of, make fun of him that they forget that, you know, he's he built that building or he's got that location or he's done this or he's done that. 
and they, now transposing yeah. that to the political arena, they didn't see him coming, and that fit perfectly with his ability to sort of move through the uh, in the radar under the radar, but still mobilize these constituents. Uh, yeah. that you're I think he's also infuriates people because we are in a larger question about what is wisdom. Is wisdom getting stamped with an Ivy League degree and then going to DuPont Circle Upper West Side or wherever and getting in politics or journalism or marrying somebody with a proper university label? He comes along and he survived the dog-eat-dog Manhattan real estate market. Maybe he was wounded in the process, but anybody who goes through that and has to deal with unions and environmentalists and crooked politicians and public opinion and the media in New York has skills that the coastal elites don't, and yet they think that because they're in politics or journalism or their uh, media or they have a Harvard or Stanford degree that they're they're wiser. And so Trump comes along, and now we're starting to think he's bringing in some business people, he's bringing in military people. The one the one type of person he's not bringing in are academics with PhDs and not a lot of career politicians. And so that gets people even more marginalized and angry And uh, because he's really saying to the country, there's a lot of smart people out there, and they didn't give you $20 trillion in debt, and they didn't give you the worst economic growth since Herbert Hoover, and they didn't give you the mess in the Middle East, and you make fun of them, and they live in weird places that you don't associate with, and but they're very capable, and we're going to give them a shot now, and then, boy, that has... I can't I can't underestimate how angry people in academia and in journalism and big media are about that. I was wondering with all of the things you were saying whether there is in all of that that confusion, the chaos, the resentment, the rage of a of a newcomer supposedly unprofessional politician. Do you think there's the potential for finding common ground, you know, at, at directly because, you know, his instincts are, well, you know, I don't even know. I can't presume to know what his instincts are. I think he, he may wish that he could be a unifier. I think his experience teaches him that doesn't really work. You've got to fight, you know, you've got to go to the wall to get whatever you want. I, I'm, I'm trying to find a, a hopeful sign that with all of this, there is a, a breeding ground for common I think you're common, right, though. Commonality. Yeah, I think his plan is that the quoted line from the <laughs> Wild Bunch, uh, money cuts a lot <laughs> of family ties. And I think what he's saying is that if we deregulate and reformulate the tax code and we promote job growth, and I get 3%, I being Trump, if I can get you 3% economic, which we first we didn't get for eight years, and maybe we'll even get 3.5, then the inner city... Uh, this red-blue divide will start to fade because people will have opportunities that they've never had before. And if I close down the border and, and have it return to just legal immigration and diverse immigration and immigration based on meritocratic criteria, that will help job growth and job compensation for Americans. It will make assimilation and integration uh, much easier. And so I think he's saying if you in the inner city, you didn't get much from Barack Obama except a lot of uh, divisive identity politics, rah, rah, rah. But what if you got three, three to four percent and there were jobs for inner city youth or for people who were second generation immigrants? And so I, I think that's the plan. And that also, ironically, I think bothers people in the uh, Republican establishment. So if I were to ask some people, I'll just name some names of people that I know very well, uh, Elliot Cohen or George Will or Jonah Goldberg or Brett Stevens. Uh, these are the sort of movers and shakers of the Republican op-ed movement. I would think that they don't like any of that, and they feel that he's betrayed American uh, Republican orthodoxy. He's bringing in sort of a populist demagogic element to politics. And most importantly, he doesn't he doesn't listen to people who they think are sober and judicious, Council on Foreign Relations, Chairman of the Economics Department at Yale, that kind of people that they see every day and they like and they're part of that East Coast culture. I, I think he's bringing together people by through economic, at least it's too soon, but his plan is to bring people together by economic prosperity, a new sort of nationalism, and then sort of a common dislike of the furniture of American governments, that elite. So it's 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 both. It's sort of polarizing and yet it's unifying. And I think also that it's important 
that he must understand that it's one thing to talk about this, the, the vision and it's one thing to talk about the programs and the aspirations that those programs could trigger, but it's a very different thing to actually get them done. And I yeah. think that he understands very well that his audience, his time on stage is going to be governed, I think, rather ruthlessly by his ability to deliver on stuff. And to, to I think you're right. Things. I would even Whether it's, more. And whoever is holding him accountable is going to be doing so because they, on a certain sense, they're gunning for him. And he, I think his instincts yeah. are sharp enough to know that he's got to deliver somehow, yeah. some I, way. I, I think it's really even more stark. I think, I think if he does not obtain 3, 3% economic growth by next November, he's going to lose in the midterm election. He's got to deliver. And I think that's economic. And I think he's got to, he, he believes that simplifying the tax code, deregulating, uh, promoting American jobs, except we'll see if it works. And if it were to work, remember that Reagan, at least initially in late 83, early 84, was considered he probably wouldn't win re-election. And then by the end of, uh, by November 1984, he had achieved in the last 12 months 7.2 economic growth, and it was a landslide. I think that's what everything hinges on, whether he can get the economy moving and get economic growth that was lacking the last eight years. Do you think, uh, to your point, that will both sides, the, the Democrats and Republicans, will they learn from Trump? Will they take the lessons that Trump is teaching them right now uh, and apply them to their respective parties? Or do you well, we think they're all waiting? they're all waiting for him to fail and then go back to business as usual? I think it's the latter. Uh, in the case of the Democratic Party, as they look at those key treasured blue states that fell to Trump, you don't hear people saying, we need to talk to Jim Webb, or we need to get the old blue dogs, or we need to get the Democratic Bill Clinton coalition of the 90s back. It's more, we've got to double down on race, class, and gender, race, class, and gender. So the spokespeople and the DNC leadership, and Keith Ellison is a polarizing figure, so is Tom Perez, and they and they don't get that yet. And I think Whatever Trump does, he's been given a great gift because they haven't learned from their defeat. In the case of the Republicans, their division is a little bit different, and that is he decapitated the uh, elite, but 92% of the Republican Party voted for Trump. And so what he's really done, and I don't know what the result will be, is the most influential people in the Republican Party in, in terms of media or politics, the Paul Ryans, the... Uh, as I said, the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal, these people are sort of in a tenuous position now. They cannot stand Trump. They'll work with him, but they don't like him. But they represent a very small number demographically, and Trump has sort of bypassed them, and his appointments show that. So the Democrats, have, Democrats haven't reconciled this election, and I, and I think they're doing the exact opposite, and they're counting on him, as you said, to implode. He may implode. He could do what... Nixon did after the 72 election. But if he doesn't implode, I don't think they have an anecdote for him. And I think the Republican Party will sort of outgrow its elite. And uh, it's already starting to. What do you think will replace that? In the, you know, in the, the Republican Democrats. Party or in the in, in No, in for the, the Democrats. Democrats. Uh, well, the Democrats are, we know what's happened already. They have They have voluntarily given up the constituencies that voted for Barack Obama in 2008 not because they liked him, because they didn't know very much about him. They thought he could win. He promised a balanced budget. He promised he was against gay marriage. He was against illegal immigration, all of those things that he later flipped on. But that's how he delivered the clingers. I mean, they voted, Pennsylvania voted for Obama 2008 twice. I don't think that's going to happen again unless they make radical changes. So we've known what, hap what the future of the Democratic Party is. It's a coastal, local, municipal party right now. It has no national clout other than the filibuster or, you know, obstructionism, but it doesn't have a, a new agenda, and uh, it, it, it won't until it can go back to a place like Ann Arbor, Michigan, or it can go into Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or it can go into, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and say to the people who abandon it, I know you don't like some of the social, cultural shrillness that we had, but uh, we represent your economic interests. And that won't be possible if we have 3% economic growth on our Trump. So 
I don't. I think they've got an existential problem. I don't. The Republicans have an intellectual, ideological problem, but not a demographic problem. Their problem is that the people who are the architects of their policy and their bumper sticker rep, um, appearance have been discredited, and they're angry, and they don't. Know, and they're going to cause Trump a lot of trouble. They're a- actively rooting for his failure, but they're very small in number and very. They used to be very influential. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. So you think that what, what, what I'm hearing is that the potential, in effect, of a common, a striving for common common goals is going to be driven through economic policy uh, shifts on both sides of the aisle and perhaps even a, a new voice, a middle voice or a third voice I think that, so. that, 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 that starts to mitigate the extremist, you know, uh, the tendency of the, the, of the two sides to migrate towards either socially... Uh, you know, very controversial issues in the case of the Democrats or kind of, you know, more tried and true conservative ideas of economics that don't necessarily apply as it relates to the Republicans. And so the the common ground, it would seem to me, has to be bread and butter issues, you know, whoever sponsors them. And, and people have to, you know, politicians have to wake up to the fact that the the essential goal is to find the greatest good for the greatest number of people. I mean, unless... No, I think you're absolutely you know, right. That's the key. That's why we, how to do that is, I think. Yeah. yeah. If you talk to Steve, a guy like Stephen Bannon, who's completely demonized, but if you collate what he's actually said over the last five years, and I, I did take time to read a lot of things he said in interviews, that's exactly what he said. He said that people, he didn't want a party that had Hollywood elites in it, and he didn't really want a party that had people. I'm a. Th- I'm speaking to you from a think tank. Think tank pundits. He wanted to bring working classes of all different races from the Democratic Party and mold them into the Republican Party and sort of a people's populist party that would, you know, favor economic issues and nationalism, patriotism, and be very careful about nation-building, neoconservative democracy spreading throughout the world. And so it's sort of an – everybody uses this, but – you know, as from American history, the Jacksonian Revolution wasn't just bringing a bunch of new people in the party. It was Jackson's attack on the Tidewater and New England elites, and he made the argument, hey, you guys, John Quincy Adams is not John Adams, and he's not. He, these guys are not Jefferson and Washington and Hamilton and Monroe and Madison. Those guys are gone. These are their second string, second generation who want status and influence based on where they live and their hereditary ties to a a lost generation. So Trump is trying to say that. He's saying these people at Harvard or Yale, uh, they're not the guys that built the United States after World War II. These are not the people. These are kind of a bankrupt third version of it, and they don't deserve the influence that they demand, especially in the media. And then when you start to think of things, you know, Rathergate, uh, Brian Williams, Fantasies, WikiLeaks, Journalist, um, and you see what happened at Middlebury, what happened at Berkeley. You get the impression that the, the interior of the country is starting to say, you know what, I don't think these people in the university and the media are any better than we are. To that point, it seems like both the Republicans and the Democrats, those are two big aircraft carriers to try to turn on a dime and change with the times. Do you think this is now an opportunity for a third party to I don't jump think into third the parties fray. Will make it. They, they've never made it in the United States. They've had periods of 24, 36 months of resonance, but they they don't have the institutional heft in the way that the legislatures and the government set up. It, it favors a two party. But we have seen radical restructures, restructuring in the in each of the parties. And I think. But here's a question for you. Do you think that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I look at the Green Party in Europe, and they don't have what they lack in, in registration and actual numbers of, of party members. They make up for, for the fa- with the fact that the, the other parties, uh, I'm thinking of Germany, are so gridlocked, and the margins between them are such that the Green 3% is picking a small number, becomes highly, highly influential and actually becomes a tiebreaker. So their leverage well, is, is way out of proportion with their I think what you're talking about is membership. I think you're right, but it's already taking place within the two-party system. By that I mean I'm at a center-right think tank at Hoover, which I think eight years ago uh, would have been 90-10. 
uh, if you had polled my colleagues for McCain over Obama, if you polled them today in the last election, I think it would have been 70-30 Hillary or at least 70-30 never Trump. Only 30% would have voted for Trump. And I think if I looked at a magazine like the Weekly Standard or National Review, maybe not, or the Wall Street Journal, they are adapting or adopting positions that they would have never even considered eight or nine or ten years ago. They're mostly for open borders. They're for on social issues. They're pro-gay marriage. They're I mean, they're, they're just not like they were eight years. They've already changed. I think if you talk to individuals privately, did you vote for Hillary or did you vote for Trump? At least half of them voted for, for Trump, and two-thirds fell in the category. I mean, for Hill, excuse me, two-thirds fell in the category that, that they wouldn't have voted for Trump under any circumstances. And then uh, on the flip side, I live on a farm 200 miles from here. It's, and it's the poorest county in California, southern Southwest Fresno County, but when I talk to working people, both Mexican-American and not, they tell me they had never voted before or had, they voted, they had voted Democratic and they voted for Trump. At least a third of Mexican-American people I know, especially those who didn't speak Spanish, maybe half voted for Trump. And then I would say all the working class whites voted for Trump and they would have never voted for Romney. They would have never voted for McCain. They couldn't stand Romney. So I think there's already a tectonic shift going on. It's just that parties are trading places, sort of, and it's becoming more of an elite versus a mass. Surely people that I, I, I deal with every day, both in interviews or writing or physically where I work, they feel much more comfortable culturally, socially, with the people, with the direction that the Democratic Party is going, and that this is just a sea change for them than they do with the people in Fresno. So do you think ultimately ultimately, will the two parties just become one big homogenized party? Will there be no differences between Republicans and Democrats? Well, there's differences, and but I think that there's the conservative on the right and the liberal on the left, but then everything in between is now up for grabs, especially as this identity politics uh, matrix is sort of shown to be bankrupt, that people assimilate much more quickly than we thought, and that to the degree that there are blocks, they're either in left-wing places like California, which is going to be left anyway, or Texas, which is going to be right anyway. So I think there's this shifting group in the middle, and they tend to be a little bit more conservative on social issues. They tend to be um, more economic populist, and on certain areas, I mean, there they some of them like Bernie Sanders, some of them like Donald Trump, but they did not like Hillary Clinton, and they didn't like the establishment Republicans on the stage with Trump, at least to the degree that was necessary for him to get nominated. And so I think they're up for grabs, and they're going to be shifting and moving depending on how the economy goes and depending on the cultural issues. And Trump, I think, I mean, it's one of the most astounding political reinventions in history that a person who was three times married, garish, said he was a billionaire, then appealed to people who were social conservatives and economic populists, but he did in a very effective way, in a way that some guy who really was that, maybe a Scott Walker, did not. Kind of well, reminds you of FDR on some level, doesn't it? I mean, a traitor to his class is the way people framed his, that the establishment framed him as a, how could this guy do this? You know, he's well brought up, you know, Groton and Harvard and, the best schools, the best everything, and here he is espousing downright socialism. And the, the vitriol that came at him was in direct proportion to the success that he had with talking about bread and butter issues. And how do we get people back to work? How do we get yeah. people jobs? How do we get people the basic things that people really care about? They look to their their leaders to deliver on and and, and for whatever reason the, the great depression was was a was a complete disaster and nobody seemed to have a handle on on what to do and here comes this patrician uh talking about you know massive work programs and all this other stuff and people just said hey yeah you know what that's fine by me if i get a check and it you know and if it works let's do it forget about the label I, we may be coming to a place of the same kind of not exactly the same kind of disruption as a depression, but certainly a social uh, upheaval in which labels, you know, the old labels themselves just don't apply and they, they actually demean the interests of the people they pretend to, to describe. And, and I think that that's, that's, I think, a very powerful and, a, and potentially a very good thing. Again, striving. Yeah, I, I think. Oh, wait. Uh, 
I'm 63, and I've never heard a candidate use the plural possessive pronoun in a campaign when Trump said he didn't say the miners or the vets or the farmers. He said we got to help our miners, we got to help our vets, we got to help our farmers, and that was very unusual in general, but especially for a Republican. Mitt Romney would have never said that. So here was a guy who was almost personalizing it. These these miners are our guys, and we got to help them. Whereas Hillary said, you know. They're basically gone, and they're going to have to go find a new job. So he he was able to project for a guy who was supposedly crass and crude a degree of empathy, at least economically, that people hadn't seen before. I think it's going to be a very interesting time because I, I still don't think the architects of either party have quite understood what happened and what the potential is. And the, when you have somebody like Steve Bannon who's sort of become Darth Vader in the media, but yet when you read him, and I've met him a couple of times, this is a guy who wears motorcycle boots, is unshaven, uh, is student of popular culture, plays Rolling Stones, you know, he can't always get what you want at Trump rallies, and he's by intention and deliberate trying to take popular culture from the left and rebrand it as part of a unifying populist movement. It's He's not a racist or anti-Semite, but he's much more dangerous to the Democratic Party because he's deliberately trying to take inner city constituencies and poor white working class people and do what Roosevelt did, kind of create a a new constituency that we that are first, that's what they say, Americans for they mean we want not going to do a trade deal, we're not going to have an open border, or we're not going to go over to Iraq again, something like that, unless we understand it's in your long term interest and not just coastal elites. That's a very simplistic and maybe even demagogic formulation, but there's some truth to it. And when you get a guy like Trump, who's a master uh, reality TV, he was very skillful in bringing that message. And he, he still underestimated. Just one last anecdote, when he was on tweeting, everybody said he's destroyed his presidency last week. He, he said Obama uh, had spied on him, McCarthy. But, you know, of course, Obama is not Obama himself. He's a representation, just as Roosevelt or or Bush or Nixon for the people around him as well. But what he was saying is, and nobody quite got that, is the media has this narrative that I colluded and they, with the Russians and they've been leaking and the CIA, the FBI has obviously been giving this information or I wouldn't have been, there would have been no accounts of my computer supposedly going off on its own to Russia or my talks with the Australian and uh, president or prime minister or the Mexican. They knew all that. They knew all that about Flynn. So the, and yet they didn't find anything. The media just kept going, and all of a sudden, he's sort of like Samson in the pillars. He pulled the temple down on everybody, and he said, but wait a minute. The media says <laughs> that they got all this information, but they could only have got that if the intelligence agencies were breaking the law, and they were breaking it themselves by leaking it, and yet they didn't find anything. And with one crude and crass series of tweets, he's inversed the entire formula, and now people are saying, wow. Trump doesn't have any evidence. How could he assert that about Obama? Well, his evidence is the New York Times, the BBC, the Washington Post, NPR, who have been saying this for six months, that he was colluding based on confidential leaked intelligence reports. And so he has that ability, and I think that until people... Well, I think part of that I absolutely agree with. The argument from the other side is that they actually weren't spying on him. They were spying on the Russians, and they happened to overhear some of yes, Trump's if you look people at some of the FISA, on there. If you look at some of the FISA legislation, when you're overhearing people, then they use the term marginalization. You're not supposed to... If that's incidental, unless you're an agent of a foreign government or a foreign agent themselves from a foreign government. And so if they pick up something that Jeff Sessions is meeting with the ambassador, or they pick up something that Trump is talking to a Mexican president, and they pick out things that are not they're not indicative of a foreign agent or an American acting on behalf of a foreign that's supposed to be marginalized. And yet that was leaked. And, and it was leaked in the sense that I don't think anybody believes that Michael Cohen went over to Prague, who's never been to Prague, uh, or that Trump had a uh, despicable sexual incident on a bed. Nobody believes that, and yet that was picked up by the intelligence agencies and then leaked to the BBC and the New York Times. And when they leaked it, his computer was supposedly spontaneously communicating with a Russian computer. Now we understand it was more likely spam. So what I'm suggesting is that if 10,000 FISA orders are issued and one of them is refused, and yet they went to FISA and it was refused, 
at a 10,000 to 1 odds, then that original judge thought this is improper because it's never done. And so this was right during the campaign. So what I'm suggesting to you is that we were all expecting that some horrendous uh, revelation would occur from these leaked CIA, FBI, DIA disclosures. In fact, there wasn't leaks, so he waited until it sort of cleared, and then what he did was he said, well, I'm accusing in a really uh, outrageous fashion Obama of orchestrating this, and he meant, I think, Obama's appointees, and everybody got angry, and then he just sort of said, but I got I got that information from you, and you guys are all the authoritative reporting, you know, Washington Post, NPR, and so where did you get it? If you didn't get it from anywhere, you made it up, but if you did get it from somewhere, you got it in a leaked fashion, which is illegal. And so the intelligence there's agencies... Chill, there's a chilling effect of all of this, gentlemen, which is that intelligence communities in the military, as long as this Russian situation, for want of a better word to describe it, is not resolved and it's clear that there wasn't collusion between the Russian government and the Trump campaign uh, over manipulating the results, as long as that is still hanging fire, how on earth can certain intelligence communities open, you know, very confidently share high-level and sensitive intelligence with the president while this cloud of suspicion is hanging over. I mean, there's a, there's a chilling yeah, I think and that's I think a, paralytic that, effect going on yeah. that has to be but I see that, I, that, I think that's the center of what his argument was, that when pressed, they would not, they would change the narrative. So Senator Coons then just said after saying for two months, there was collusion. He said the other day there is no collusion. And the director of intelligence, James Clapper, who's been hemming and hawing along with Brennan, said to his knowledge there was no collusion. There may have been Russian efforts to hack WikiLeaks, but there was no direct collusion. And then when you, the, the larger landscape, he's manip- Trump is very effectively manipulating because he's making the argument, I wasn't the, I wasn't the architect of reset. I didn't push the red button. I didn't cancel missile defense. The Russians wouldn't like a guy like me who's pushing oil development that will lower the price of world oil or uh, building up the military or going to redo missile defense. They don't like guys like that. Or I didn't sell the uranium deposits under Uranium One. So he's got an argument, and uh, people don't because they don't they underestimate him. They think he's so crude, and he is crude and crass. But right now, the problem is that. The intelligence agencies that have leaked all this collusion are backing away from ever saying that there was collusion. And the the media outlets who leaked it for partisan purposes, some of which during the campaign, by their own declarations the last 36, 48 hours, they're not sticking to the story. You can't get anybody at the Washington Post or the New York Times now suddenly to say, I have evidence that Donald Trump probably colluded with the Russians to affect the election. They're not saying that. They're denying that happened. And yet they did pretty much say that before that. They drove that narrative for sure. And he's really been effective by, I guess you could say he's made the accusers the accused because there's a a paradox in it. And the paradox is of classical proportions. He's basically saying, where did you get this information, Donald Trump, to say that? And he said, well, the New York Times says that the CIA and the FBI and the DIA all had evidence, and they had found information on my computer. They had tapped uh, General Flynn and Trump Tower, and Obama says that didn't happen. Well, who did it then? Was it Loretta Lynch? Was it an Obama CIA appointment? Was it DIA? Because somebody did it because you said it happened. And they're kind of... Well, that's no why they need to, to look into it, don't you think? I mean, They do. I, I don't think they're going to look into it because uh, I think that Trump... The irony is that Trump and the House and Senate Republican-dominated committees will try to look into it. But they've represented Nunes, while he is a Republican and he's a conservative, he's a pretty honest guy, and he's already said that they have not found anything yet. And he agreed with somebody who doesn't, he doesn't usually agree with, James Clapper. There's no direct evidence that Trump deliberately tried to collude with the Russians to affect the election. But there is a lot of evidence, and I think this is what the Democrats will try to stop. Well, with, with Trump sort of blowing up both of these parties, do you think both parties are going to have to learn to compromise because both were on the losing side of this, and if they want to ride Trump's coattails, particularly for the midterm elections, that in legislation coming up, they're going to have to learn how to compromise and how to work together. 
Yeah, I, I think, think there's so a third except- part to that question, though, which is, will the media, which is constantly fueled by the notion that you've got to be dramatic, which means you've got to pit people against each other and let them duke out and, you know, may the best person win, they're going to have to figure out a way to report in which they can encapsulate these opposing points of view and start a dialogue around, all right, well, how do we work through this? What what are the concrete solutions to this that will, again, leave most people feeling like, well, I got something for it, as opposed to one one constituency feeling they got robbed and didn't get anything. I mean, so it's a it's a three way because you know Trump didn't just destroy both parties; he also made the media look completely incompetent. There is one difference, though. It's in the interest of the Republicans to destroy. I mean, the Democrats to destroy him because that's how they return to power. And it's in the interest of the congressional Republicans to make sure that he succeeds because that's how they hold on to power. Many of them realize that if he hadn't have carried those states, they wouldn't have had a lot of the political power in the Congress that they had. They had been forecasting he was going to lose not only the Senate but maybe the House, and he didn't. Right. So they're vested, whether they like it or not, in seeing him succeed, and the, and the Democrats are invested in seeing him fail. So for now – the only thing that would change that is something outrageous that Trump would do, but he survived the Access Hollywood and he survived these latest tweets. And in both cases, he came out in a Nietzschean sense stronger. And I mean, he can get in a war, he could do all sorts of things we could imagine, but it's very hard to see how he would do something that the Republicans that would distance themselves or that the Democrats could say that he's impeachable for. So I, I think it's going to hinge on the economy. Well, we're, we're uh, running short on time, but I want to get one more question in and one more answer from each of one of you. Do you think there's a reason to hope that ultimately we will come together before the country is destroyed? There's always reason to hope. The question is, is it grounded in anything that you can see as materializing or is it still, you know, being imagined? And, and my sense is that there, in a vacuum, there's always great potential. We're in a vacuum in which a lot of uh, institutions are, are are being forced to reevaluate the assumptions under which they operate. And this goes, as a businessman, I can testify that just about every sector that I've ever been exposed to, it's the same situation, dislocation, massive upheaval, people not knowing what the future looks like, you know, and the resultant uh, anxiety around it. But But that's also very fertile ground for new create you know creative thinking which thrives on the unknown that thrives on uh, the challenge to uh, you know what could be but isn't so you know to answer your question joe i i am hopeful for the very reason that all of this sturm und drang that we're going through is reflective of people really questioning for perhaps the first time very deeply you know who they are what they want what this country ought to be what it is and uh, you can only, I believe, have a, ultimately a healthy outcome from such a, from such a journey. Dr. Hansen, do you agree? Yeah, I do. I, I think that part of the problem that we're in is not of making in 2016. I think that under the Bush and Obama administrations, uh, there were problems with record debt uh, and the, the meltdown of 2008 and the, the poor reaction to it under Obama. I think we had anemic economic growth, and I think that we didn't address these problems. And I think now it's not so much Trump's genius, but that we're running out of time. So whether we like him or not, people are going to have to come together and deal with Social Security, $20 trillion in debt, get the economic growth up to 3%, and deal with open borders. And once these things are addressed and there's progress at being addressed, you'll start to see optimism again. And I think you're already seeing it with yesterday's job report that it was pretty much much better than you thought. And politics and personal politics of personal destruction they always intensify when there's issues that are not being addressed. I, I know that was true of illegal, illegal immigration. And I think Trump, as a business person, will understand that for all his rhetoric, he always demands three times more than he's willing to take. So if he gets a 51% deal, he takes it. And he will start to compromise in a way that uh, we did we didn't see the last eight years. I do think that once the economy and I do I'm hopeful there starts to improve, then a lot of these tensions will start to recede. And I'm hopeful for that. I'm not sure of it, but I'm hopeful. 
I'd like to thank both of my guests today. We could have gone on for two or three more hours with these discussions. I appreciate both of you taking the time today to speak with us. I'd like to thank Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and also author Antonia Amali. He's the author of The Ones They Left Behind. Thank you both for joining us today. I look forward to speaking again with both of you soon. Thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure to talk. I enjoyed it as well. We would like to thank you for joining us today on the Literary Roundtable, and we hope that you will join us again soon. Be sure to check out our website at literaryroundtable.com, where you can find out about all of our guests that will be joining us in the future. If you would like to submit questions for any of our guests, you can tweet us at at literaryrt, or you can email us your questions to lrtquestions at gmail.com. I'm your host, Joe Marsh, and I hope you will pull up a chair and join us for our next Literary Roundtable, where you are always welcome. Music provided by Jazar and David Zeste.